we are recording and now I'm going to go back in. All right, can you all still see it? Yeah. Okay, cool. uh, so let's see. Um, there it is. Okay, uh, how about uh, Adel, why don't you start reading for us? Oh, it's one of those things. Yeah, it is. <laughs> the latest monstrosity of the Middle East is presented in, in its full magnanimity. Magnanimity. Magnanimity, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> the destruction of the Syrian people at the hands of the atheist Kafar, but but he regime of Bashar al-Assad. You were very young when the so-called Arab Spring started in 2011. You knew that something was happening. You would watch glimpses of the news of massive massive demonstration taking place in the central squares of a number of Arab capitals. These were revolutions. Tunisia was the first country to fall to the, to the demonstrations. Its president fled. Egypt also had a revolution, and its aging president was arrested and imprisoned. The Libyan leader uh, was hunt, hunted down and killed in a gruesome manner. Yemen had initially, initially less violent outcome, and then all eyes were, were on Syria. The Syrian people demonstrated in dance and demanded change. Okay. Yeah, so, so to, I mean, this, these are all things that you're all familiar with to varying degrees, uh, but to give you a sense of campus life, uh, when, so we had the Arab Spring that begins about 10 years ago, and it starts, the legend is that it starts in Tunisia, in North Africa, with <clears throat> this guy who gets abused by the police, and he, uh, he gets abused horribly bad, badly, and uh, uh, out of anger and frustration, he sets himself on fire and he kills himself. And then that story spreads, and that inspires people in every single country to to organize, and the biggest organ, uh, the biggest protests were in Egypt, where literally a single protest would have like 25 million people showing up. I mean, these were ginormous protests, right now. Farah and Takwar like, yeah, these are my people, and 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 basically this was uh, this was huge, and it was almost coordinated. Like the protest would be in Egypt. Okay, now it's going to be in Libya. Now it's going to be in in uh, Yemen and such. In, in Libya, you had Muammar Gaddafi, who was a leader of, of Libya for a couple of decades. And the way it's described here, he was literally hunted down and killed in a gruesome manner. He was killed in a very gruesome way. And then, uh, then the big one, the big story often is Syria and Yemen. Yemen is still in war right now, where uh, even, you know, I have a teacher who, you know, we, we, we study online who's from Yemen. And, you know, I asked him, what's life like? And he's like, yeah, well, we're at war. And, and you know, it's like you're trying to live your day-to-day -day life while destruction is taking place around you, you know, literally. And then the Syrians, it was also interesting because we have, most of our Arabs on campus are Palestinian. And then the second most are probably Syrians. And it was literally like I watched the Syrians transform from these energetic students to literally they were just walking around like zombies. Uh, in deep depression, and a lot of the depression was just a feeling of guilt. Like, you know, here I am in, in Chicago living well, while my first cousins and my grandparents and my extended family back home, they're suddenly in destruction, like literal uh, destruction. So here he is speaking about this in the context of, you know, what is it that we have to boast about versus what is it that we have to work on and such. So he's talking about the situation in the Middle East. Uh, continue. 
Uh, okay, let's move to another reader. How about uh, uh, Ramsha? You want to read? Yeah, sure. Can you point towards where we are? Uh, where it says then. Okay. Whoops, hold on. Okay, go back. Yeah. Then Syrian children were arrested, tortured, and killed. Their bodies were returned to their families. More and more violence was committed against the Syrian demonstrators. You have grown up watching the daily reports of the deaths in Syria. You yeah, another, another issue is that first it used to make news when like 30 people were killed in a day. Then it made news that 100 people were getting killed in a day. But then when 1,000 people were getting killed in a day, it wasn't making the news anymore because that just became the common story. And, and, and probably within a matter of months, just about every Syrian person I knew had relatives that were killed. You know, that's, how, that's how bad the destruction was. Okay, continue. You also know that the destruction of Syria and the radical forces that are operating in the territory of northern Syria and Iraq have, all, have led to a great migration of refugees into Turkey and then across into Europe. Initially, the Europeans welcomed these refugees with open arms. Other refugees had already been established in enormous camps in Lebanon, Turkey, and Jordan. This new wave of refugees came across into Europe, hoping for a better life than anything possible in the Middle East or North Africa. As Muslims, we watched these refugees risk life and limb to get away from where they originated. In fact, they are trying to get away from what are Muslim countries and Muslim lands. The debates that are taking place in Europe have gone from theoretical openness to a practical anger and panic over the implications of influx. As Muslims, we are upset that our fellow Muslims are no longer so welcome in Europe. But as Muslims, we are also facing the question of why our Muslim societies are breaking down across the Middle East, from Afghanistan to Libya. Okay, good. So, okay, easy question. How many people are there in the world who self-identify as Muslim? Easy question. Give me a number. Like two billion, I think. It would take a billion and a half, two billion, 1.7 billion, somewhere around there. <clears throat> now, we have an exact answer for you. Okay. Continue, I'll let you know. Is this like some CIA fact book or something? <laughs> it's actually from a Malay. One point two billion. One point two. Uh, no, the number is way higher than that. Well, this is as of. Look, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> okay, fair enough. Anyway, so this is twenty eighteen. Okay, so now as of. Uh, about 200 years ago, how many Muslims moved from Muslim-majority lands to non-Muslim-majority lands, not including India? Give me a number, a guess. Anyone? Throw out a number, it's not like you're getting in trouble. I mean, okay, maybe I gave Adil a hard time for having the wrong number, but okay, I won't anymore to any of you. Um. About half a billion. That's pretty low. I mean, but we're saying it's it's uh, 
probably not a third of the contemporary Muslim world, but we're saying over to the generations and such. And and so so the numbers go literally literally that high. And so the question to think about that he's raising is that all right, we claim we have the best religion, but in our societies, everybody's trying to move out to lands not run by Muslims. So that raises a big question mark, like what's going on? The point he's going to make later on is that we can't use colonialism as an excuse because that's the excuse everybody years, uses year after year after year. At some point, the responsibility is on us. And to make it more relevant to all of you, uh, <clears throat> think about uh, our Muslim community on campus versus other communities. What do we offer that everybody else doesn't already have in some form? Okay, when we're talking about Islam or life. And then likewise, ask yourself individually, how am I different, you know, as a practicing Muslim than the person sitting next to me uh, in class? Meaning, is my piety higher? Uh, if yes, how do I measure it? Is my character better? You know, is my work ethic better? And, and so, so the point is that it's also in the same way it's easy for people to blame um, uh, uh, dictators and colonialism on the struggles of Muslim-majority countries. It's also easy for us to just look at them and point fingers. But this is literally a question for us each at the individual level. You know, am I, if I have what is, what I believe is the best of all religions, then in what way am I any different than the person next to me? And so that's a harder question because now that puts 100% of the responsibility on me. Okay, good. Uh, let's have another reader. Uh, how about Taqwa? How about you if you read? Sure. <laughs> Where do I read from? Uh, you also? Yeah. You also know that the destruction of Syria and the radical forces that are operating in the territory of northern Syria and Iraq have led to a great migration of refugees into Turkey and then across into Europe. Initially, the Europeans welcomed these refugees with open arms. Other refugees had already been established in enormous camps in Lebanon, Turkey, and Jordan. This new wave of refugees came across into Europe, hoping for a better life than anything possible in the Middle East or North Africa. As Muslims, we watch these refugees risk life and limb to get away from where they originated. In fact, they're trying to get away from what are Muslim countries and Muslim lands. The debates that are taking place in Europe have gone from theoretical openness to a practical anger and panic over the implications of the influx. As Muslims, we're upset that our, uh, that our fellow Muslims are no longer so welcome in Europe. But as Muslims, we're also facing the question of why our Muslim societies are breaking down across the Middle East from Afghanistan to Libya. Okay, so same basic point that we've been making. And then to <clears throat> address the other side, uh, like he's saying that at first all these refugees were being welcomed, and now uh, all the refugees are getting blocked and people are getting angry at the refugees. This includes every place from Turkey all across Europe and such. And a lot of it sometimes has to do with, with economic struggles. If there's an economic struggle, then people start pointing the fingers. Oh, it's because of you guys. Often they're pointing the fingers at the minorities 
uh, saying that you guys are basically taking advantage of us. That's literally part of the Muslim ban, you know. Uh, okay, good. Uh, in fact, why don't, you, why don't you read another paragraph? You know that some of my work is concerned with the problem of Syria. You ask me, when is it going to end? You seem to think that the world has left Syrians to their fate. Here the videos of tortured and maimed Muslim children are countless. The outrage you feel is completely rational and justified. The crimes committed against the innocent and the defenseless are condemned by all people everywhere, but no one seems to be doing anything about it. Who is going to put a stop to the carnage? Who is going to take revenge against the killers? Every day in the Arab world, in Europe, and in the United States, you are told that governments are helpless in the face of global economic forces or climate change or extremism. Governments are not going to do anything because they do not want to or because they cannot. So the only one left is you. So what do you do? <laughs> You're the only one who has any ounce of morality left. Only you seem to know the difference between right and wrong, between good and evil. There are others out there like you. They also feel the outrage. They feel the sense of impotence when they look at the way people seem to shrug at the news of the latest atrocity and then get on with their mundane lives. Fast food restaurants, TV shows, Facebook and Instagram. You're all perplexed by the way people seem to be more interested in the petty politics of Congress and the European Union than they are by the greatest moral question of the 21st century. You, like human beings in general, have this constant urge to make sense of the world around you. It can be a painful process, but there is light at the end of the tunnel of worry, anxiety, and self-doubt. Could it be that the online ulema or religious scholars of Islam are correct? Could it be that they are living and they are the living embodiment of what Islam can and should and will become? The path is clear and the language is straightforward and simple. When all the clutter of modern life is removed, the path opens up before you towards meaning and purpose. Okay, good. So, so the point I want to draw our attention to, there's just a couple of really good lines here. Um, one, you're all perplexed by the way people seem to be more interested in the petty politics of Congress and the European Union than they are by the greatest moral question of the 21st century. You know, it's like people all over the world know exactly what's going on in the United States, right? Everyone knows about the election. I'm sure they all know that what's her name, uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, just died uh, because American media dominates the whole world. Right. It's been recent that you have channels like Al Jazeera that actually have more viewership. Um, and so it sort of shifted the attention away. But still, by and large, people are paying attention to what happens in Europe and such. And then on top of that, everyone is still consumed with social media and TV and Instagram and all that stuff. And he says, look at all that in contrast to the greatest moral question of the 21st century, that the question of the era is the question of what do we do? regarding all the refugees. And, and so you know how like so many of our wars today are focused on oil. Uh, the next phase is the wars focused on water. And so however much we have in refugees right now, the expectation is just because of decreasing access to water, that's gonna keep, the refugee populations are gonna keep growing. And, and so that's literally the biggest question of the era bigger than violence, bigger than terrorism, bigger than everything else, although all that stuff will be related. And so these are questions that are on my shoulders. They're questions on your shoulders too. 
It doesn't mean that, okay, the eight of us sitting, sitting here are going to figure out how to solve it all. But it also doesn't mean we have an excuse not to try to figure things out. You know, uh, and to the point that these are such serious questions that they could even affect our akhra. What did you do about this stuff that's going on that you knew what was going on? You know. Okay, uh, let's do a little bit more. How about, let's see, Hina. Uh, why, don't you, why don't you read for us? Uh, start from the more you look. Okay, hold on. I had to switch devices, so just give me a second. Okay, take your time. <laughs> or we can come back to you while you're switching. Uh, Hadia, how about if you read for us? Um, starting from the more you look. Yeah, the more you look. Right? Okay. Uh, the more you look, the more you find what makes sense. You are all tapping into a great civilization, or at least a civilization that was once great, and that must be great again. Okay, so you believe that. Uh, oh, okay. Yeah, well, a, a simple paragraph there. One point uh, to really try to appreciate is that from the time of the Prophet, peace be upon him, until the beginning of the 20th century, uh, the Muslim civilizations were literally the superpowers of the world. And you can break it up. I'm not saying they were all a golden period or anything like that. You had all the highs and lows of civilization. But usually when we think of Islamic history, we have the biography of the Prophet, peace be upon him. And if I ask you to give me the biography, most people probably give the same 20 points or so. He was in the cave. And then, you know, after that, Khadija. And then after that, Waraka bin Nofu. And then so forth and on, all the way up till his death. Maybe a little bit of facts after his death. Maybe you can tell me a little bit about the, about the 30 years after his death, peace be upon him. And then our collective memory starts to go really far down. So nothing to say about the Umayyads and the Ubasids and the Fatimids and the Mughals and the Ottomans and all that stuff. Some of that's coming back because everybody's watching Ertugrul and shows like that. But the point is, one thing to appreciate, so on the one hand, we're always saying things like this is the best religion and the true religion and all that stuff. Our civilization was an amazing civilization as well. Uh, that the fruits that were produced by so-called Islamic civilization were amazing contributions to the human experience. And it's easy to only think of, you know, like when you're in America, you almost feel like there's nothing else in the world. It's also easy to fall into feeling like there's nothing else in history. But <clears throat> you're all inheriting an amazing historical legacy that if you were to go through it, you'd find amazing wonders and such. Okay, uh, continue, uh, Hadia. And then we'll come back to Hina after that. Uh, you believe that your parents do not understand the issues you face. They lived in a different world. How many of you feel that way? Don, don, don. Okay, continue. Uh, they are content with the mind-numbing and back-breaking work they do. They are isolated and powerless in the face of technologies and economic forces. Can they even call themselves good Muslims? You are embarrassed to think it, but you cannot help it. Your parents are cowards who do not want to face the world. They are not the good Muslims that you thought they were. Islam has demands and it has rights over us. We need to be good and being good means living up to the demands of Islam. Okay, keep going. Uh, what are your parents doing? Nothing. They mutter things under their breath when, they, when the news comes on. They are always tired and irritable. They do not have any convincing answers to your questions. In fact, not only are they not living up to the clear and simple dictates of Islam, but they are also dinosaurs who have no role in this life. You love them, but they are 
purple role in the great battle of good against evil. Okay, good. So without any of you indicting your own parents, have you know anybody who has these same sentiments about their parents? I just have a quick question, actually. Uh, yeah. Is this letter addressing, who is this? I, this is my first time. Who is this letter yeah. to? So this is a father who's give or take my age writing a series of letters to his son who is give or take your age. And, and so these are about 40 letters that he's written to his son. So is he talking about his parents? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's basically he's saying, this is probably how you think of me. Oh, okay. Yeah. And this is probably how I thought of my parents. You know, meaning what he's describing is a very common sentiment about people and their parents. So, so what do you all think? Is there this feeling that uh, my parents, they don't understand. They are the dinosaur. They're not from this world. They don't understand. What do you all think? <laughs> Tucker, are you about to say something? I thought the dinosaur thing was a little harsh. <laughs> They're yeah. also dinosaurs who have no role in this life. <laughs> wow. But I do think there's a lot of people who do feel that way. You know, a whole lot of people who come to my office who feel that way about their folks. You know. Well, my parents are old, but they're just old because they're old. And but I want to touch upon this because when it talks about how they don't hold a responsibility to Islam, I think that is an overstatement. Yeah. Because it's the culture that binds them to their ideals, not the religion. Okay. And so, because I, I face this with my parents, so oftentimes they will put culture before Islam. Okay. And. I think that is that is the point he's trying to make and that is the point that is relevant to probably most of us a lot of things our parents do are not in the face of islam but in the face of culture okay uh hina were you saying something yeah i was gonna say on the first day i said something about mixing culture with islam which is one of like our biggest problems mm -hmm. um but i feel like i agree with Akwa that this is a little extreme like they're not completely dinosaurs um, but yeah, they, I feel they're like, like 65 million years old, they're probably about 20 million years old, basically. <laughs> yeah. Jurassic era. Okay. Maybe they're from yeah. the, the Bronze Age. All right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think some things that they do understand, but then a lot of things they don't, and it gets frustrating, but I wouldn't say like that they have no role in our lives because even in the Quran, it says like, Jannah is under our mother's feet, and if you don't, like, you have to please your parents, basically. So I don't think there's a whole, like, you have no role, but, yeah, unless I'm going and talking about something different. No, no, no. I mean, technically, that's actually not in the Quran. But anyway, but the point is still oh, really? it's in the Hadith, but yeah, but it's, oh, still, yeah. it's still a central teaching. And, and so, yeah, so, so you're making two points. One is, yeah, sure, my parents are obsolete, kind of like a really old car that doesn't work almost like a dinosaur, but they're still my parents. And so my mother has to be able to stand on my head so I can be in Jannah because it's under her feet, you know. You know. Uh, Tequa, yeah. I guess I have like a question, kind of a comment, but like where it says, but they're peripheral, peripheral in the great battle of good against evil. I, I guess that like implies that like at some point parents like, are not in the, I guess, fight anymore. And that's like on us as the next generation. But like, mm -hmm. 
where does the line like when do you transition from like not being held responsible technically to like being held responsible mm -hmm. so when do you start being held responsible uh, essentially it's uh, the term that is used is when you are baler and baler is defined essentially in simple language as you've gone through puberty and your brain works basically right and and so that's when you start becoming responsible obviously that might be age 13 uh give or take for some of you it might have been age six for some of you it might be age 35 but the point is that when you when you finally go through this uh you have responsibilities but it doesn't mean you have a job yet you know doesn't mean you're old enough for a job or those things but yeah then your responsibilities start increasing a way to think about this is pretend imagine for for a moment we were not in quarantine and then all the protests were taking place throughout throughout the country okay. uh how many of you would your parents support you going into the protests you know probably not don't go there are people with guns you're gonna get shot wallahi habibi you know all that stuff and so so the point is that in the work for 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 good and evil kind of what he's describing here in the battle uh it's kind of like they're on the sidelines and again he is saying this is probably what you think about me you know uh Hina, you're saying something yeah but i was going to say they're probably the ones who are like there's going to be guns there whatever you can go um but i don't know how i would convince them to let me but yeah, I definitely feel like our parents are using um, COVID and quarantine to put more rules on us and us that are like more strict. Like they're using it as an excuse. Like finally, I have an excuse because like if you ask them no, they just get mad because they don't have any excuse. And now they're like, it's COVID, it's COVID, it's COVID. Hmm, that's a good point. I never thought about this. Y'all feeling that way? Like, my heck, you feel like you're being kept inside your room because of COVID? You know, as an excuse for everything. She's like, yes. I feel like also like, like not just like them telling us like, no, you can't do this. But like, if you were even to like ask, they'll be like, no, even before COVID, anyways. <laughs> That's so true. Okay. Oh. I just want to say, man, it sucks being a girl. <laughs> okay. Anyway, yeah. All right. Thank you for your for your commentary. I'll, uh, I'll let the other six decide if they agree or disagree with you. But um, I okay. I think for me, like my parents are really like overprotective because like I'm the only child, so like they're always like, "Oh, where are you going?" <laughs> they're overprotective because you're the only child. That's like basically saying, "Okay, in Tuckwa's house where they have four kids, yeah, we can get rid of one. You know, the other three are fine." I mean, you don't get it, like. There's always this constant attention. Oh, like, what is she doing? Like, is she okay? Like, all of that I, stuff. But. I think that's definitely being a daughter because I'm the only daughter. So mm. that's. Seriously. I felt that. It's just because you're a girl and then also you're the only kid. Yeah. So imagine, like, the combination. It's like. So, so really, like, parents are like, eh, he's a boy. We can't. We can leave him on the street in the sewer. That's fine. <laughs> okay, I yeah, continue. What are you saying, Ramsha? I'm teasing. Um, yeah, it, it used to be really annoying before. Mm -hmm. But now, like, I look at things from their perspective, like, you know, like, it's all out of love and concern. 
So like how I handle those situations is like I try and talk to them and explain them my perspective like you know I need my time too like I need to go out with my friends also and then my dad is kind of understanding so like that like balances things out but like my mom isn't so like <laughs> okay so your daddy's girl basically yeah yeah my dad like he 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 tries to like convince my mom and that like works out but yeah well, that's good now i'll tell all of you that you know so long as inshallah your parents are alive this is not going to end yeah you'll be 30 years old 40 years old 50 years old and they're going to keep checking on you didn't you say that when you were like dealing with the kid and your parent like with the drug problem and the, your parents still called you and asked you where you were. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> it does not end, you know. And, and and then speaking from the perspective of me as a parent, and some of you heard this from me a million times. So you see yourselves as age whatever going on the next year, right? So age 20 going on 21, age 25 going on 26, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but your parent sees you according to what you were. So like my 20 year old, she sees herself as 20 going on 21, 22, 25, 30, right? I see her as 20 and yesterday she was 15. And the day before that she was 10 and the day before that she was five. Okay. I think I'm, my parents got stuck at five. Yeah, yeah. Totally. I mean, I think mine did too, right? <laughs> and so, so the point is that that's just how it's gonna be. But that's not even a cultural thing because it's interesting. Because like if you look, for example, in Surah Luqman, Luqman alayhi salam is on his deathbed talking to his son and he calls him Ya Bunaya, my, oh my little son. The chances are Luqman is probably 80 years old, his son is probably 60 years old. And he's telling his son, he's calling his son, oh my little son. So I'm saying it's not going to end. That's just how it's going to be. That's just part of the experience. And a lot of times I'll have students that are coming to you complaining. You know, I remember one student who <clears throat> he's really, really upright in everything. But he hates it when his mom, quote unquote, talks down to him and condescends him. And I said, she's not condescending you. She's talking to her little baby boy, you know. And like she's saying things like, you don't know how to cook. You don't know how to do this. You don't know how to do that. And it's like totally like, it's like, you know, it feels like, you know, she's stabbing him in the heart. It's like, no, she's talking to her little kid. I don't care if you're 25 years old, right? She's talking to her little four-year-old. And so that is also how your experience is going to be. So in the same way that, that we have a lot of uh, opinions about our folks, our folks also have a lot of opinions about us. Yeah, Adil. Yeah, so I just want to say, I don't rec recommend you guys necessarily do this, but... <laughs> it's always not a good way to begin in a, in a piece of advice, but... Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, your parents will not see you grow out as a child if you don't show them that you've grown out of being a child. Mm -hmm. I just do this. I'm the youngest. Uh, out of four, well, I'm the fourth, so, and I was, uh, I'm, I'm really special in the family, so. Oh, mashallah, mashallah. Um, and I was just spoiled and completely like, but it got to a point where I couldn't do anything I wanted to do. I, they wouldn't let me do anything. What I did was I defied them. Not saying you guys should do this, all right? There's better ways to do this. So I started making my own rules, all right? But somewhere along that line i i did it in a way where it benefited me as a person and as a muslim mm. so 
in five years down from now, five or five, this was like five, six years ago. Now, six years later, they look at me, they see me as an independent man. They see me as somebody who can't take care of himself, who, you know, I live in my own apartment. I pay, I pay the bills. I do everything. Uh, my mom doesn't have to worry if I'm going to be fed or not. I feed myself. My mom doesn't have to worry about any of the things that they have to worry about as a child. But that being said, she still calls me every day. Okay. But see, I'm also remembering, like in our MSA group chat, there's someone whose mom seems to make food for him like every single day. And and he's like, anybody wants this biryani? <laughs> yeah. That, that happened once. Okay. She, I go home like maybe once a week, maybe t- two times or uh, once times a month. day. Yeah, keep going. Yeah. And she, she like packs me with food and I tell her no. If I, she will get mad if I do not take her food. Yes, that is correct. So, I don't listen to anybody. I follow my own rules. <laughs> my mother makes me kima parata, and I eat the parata first, and then the kima. You know, I eat. I have my own rules. Yeah. Yeah. When I got back home from North Carolina, yeah. and over there I was living alone, she got. I. She. She did my laundry one day, and I got really angry. And she was really upset that I told her not to do my laundry. Mm-hmm. And so it, it's like those little things, like they, they, she just does not take no for an answer. And it's horrible because I'm stubborn. She's stubborn. I'm stubborn to the point where I, I, I was a C-session baby because I wouldn't come out. But I like our whole family, the stuff. <laughs> Everybody is just really stubborn in the family. Just, and it doesn't, you have to force your way. Like, I don't know if, if the family dynamic is like that with you guys, but you have to kind of show them that you're an adult. I mean, um, I have a question. Can you share some tips? Are you talking right now? Are you talking to, to Otto, the grown man, or are you talking to somebody else? <laughs> I'm talking to Otto. <laughs> tips are what exactly? You do realize others. this is all going on the SoundCloud thing. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, see, I forgot. That. <laughs> oh my god! Hey, tip number one is your parents have to see that you're a man. My parents will literally kill me if I'm like I want to live on my own. Like, <laughs> but show them that you can. Maybe <laughs> getting angry. It has to be laundry. That's so funny. And then when That's you do so the laundry funny. a week later, get angry again. And then... The only way I'm living by myself is when I get married. Yeah. And then, yeah, I like how you're shaking your head. You're like, no, no, no. I'm jealous of you, Ado. Like, for real. Thanks. Just take out a lease. And then... That was funny. <laughs> <laughs> that was funny. My dad just texted me. He's like, I hear you talking about me. Because <laughs> he's like in his room. That's excellent. So. Cool. Uh, let's stop right here. We had a fun... <laughs> discussion there was someone who joined us and left and has returned again good uh any other last thoughts reflections we'll continue with this someone make a mental note that we're going to start with uh there's a moment when you are faced with the key question <coughs> excuse me nothing else all righty so again what are some 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 uh takeaway points from today i'd say the big one is that there's a big mess almost everywhere you look and there are causes for these messes, but you and I each have a certain amount of responsibility in addressing the messes.
doesn't mean that we're expected to cure anything or even everything uh, or anything especially but you can either live life trying to run away from the responsibility or you can try to address it and all of us have this responsibility to address it and then we will continue the latter part of this essay gets more into the prophet himself peace be upon him okay cool very good very fun discussion got much more lively at the end which is even more fun and we will continue inshallah next week reminder tomorrow is open conversation and then i have some general topics if no one has topics and we'll end with again something about jinns and then um uh, Kino's like yeah i'll be there soundcloud or not i'll be there okay and we may still do friday we'll do uh chaplain games but two and a half people showed up last week two of them are in this in this group Okay, inshallah. So, subhanakallah, hamma bihamdika, nashadu wa la ilaha illa anta, nastaghfiruka, wa natubu ilayk, and Allah ta'ala reward you all. Okay, good discussion. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah.